Welcome to the Low Tech Podcast. I'm Scott Johnson from the Low Technology Institute, your host for podcast number 21 on April 7th, 2017, coming to you out of the Low Tech Recording Room in Madison, Wisconsin. Thanks for joining us. This week, I'll be bringing you an edited down version of a lecture I gave in St. Louis this last Tuesday about the rise and fall of ancient civilizations and lessons we can learn from them. We'll also have our regular weekly news roundup and an exciting institute update. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at low underscore techno, like us on Facebook, find us on Instagram, and check out our website, lowtechinstitute.org. There you can find both of our podcasts. This last Tuesday, I was invited to speak at the Missouri History Museum in St. Louis by the Mound City Chapter of the Missouri Archaeological Society about my most recent book, Why Did Ancient Civilizations Fail? Now Out with Rutledge. What Comes Next is a much shortened version of that talk. If you want to hear the full, unedited talk, complete with questions from the audience, please check out our sister podcast, Low Tech Lecture Series, where I'll be publishing that lecture later today. You can find the lecture series on all the same outlets as this podcast, that is iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, and of course our website, lowtechinstitute.org. Thanks to the History Museum and Mound City Archaeological Society for inviting me back to St. Louis. Without further ado... Here's that lecture. So tonight, I'm going to talk about uh, Why Did Ancient Civilizations Fail, a recent uh, book that I uh, published. Well, uh, Rutledge published it. I wrote it uh, a couple years ago. Um, and this book is really to answer the question that was asked to me 11 years ago. How do you feel about the fact that your profession does not contribute substantially to society? That's, I mean, that is a tough question, especially on a date. Um, and to be fair, the person who asked me that question was in uh, public health. So she was dealing with, you know, people's lives and deaths today, here and now, you know, really important things for their lives. And here I am grubbing in the dirt talking about people that have been dead for thousands of years. You know, I, it, was a fair it was a fair question. And of course, you know, I came back with, well, you know, you never know when knowledge is going to come in handy and arguments for, you know, knowledge for knowledge's sake. And I didn't feel like I really answered her very well. So uh, this book is somewhat uh, a way of trying to answer that question because yeah, uh, we've all heard the expression, right, those who do not know their history are doomed to repeat it. And it's kind of an old, very well-worn saw. But there is some truth to it. And I think it's important for us as archaeologists to uh, bring data together to say why this stuff is important to you today now, uh, even though, yes, I think we're at a, the Mount City Archaeological Society. You guys are interested in it just for itself. And that's great and wonderful. But you know what? There are some people that happen to be in charge of uh, the purse strings, uh, at least on the national level, who don't see it that way. So I think it's really important that we point out practical things that do come out of archaeological research. Although, unfortunately, mine sounds a little more apocalyptic than practical, unfortunately. And that brings us, of course, to uh, the book I wrote, uh, Why Did Ancient Civilizations Fail? But you're going to hear more about that uh, throughout the, uh, the evening. So um, the basic premise of the, of the book examines the rise and fall of large-scale complex societies. Note, I don't say civilizations. Uh, the title of the book uses the term civilizations because 
Uh, authors rarely get to pick the title of their book, and uh, civilization is not the term I would have used because obviously most of us know that that has a lot of negative connotations or at least colonial connotations in anthropology, so I would have picked the term large-scale complex society, but that doesn't really fit on the cover of a book very well, does it? Um, and it really looks at the context of the success and failure across these societies. And what I mean by that is I'm not just looking at the rise and fall of these societies in isolation, right? They exist in a world around them, and there is a very rich cultural history that each one of them has, and so you have to look very deeply and in a broad way. You can't just look at economics for the Romans or the environment for the Maya. You have to look at all aspects of their society, or at least as much as I could cover in the allotted space. And so I've divided up the support systems for our society into five areas, and these are a heuristic device, right? You could absolutely divide these differently. I'm not saying this is the only way that we can parse societies, but it was a pretty straightforward way for me to do it. Um, so I'm looking at, and tonight we'll be looking at the environment, agriculture, social organization, trade, and the ability to withstand with catastrophes, which is basically resilience. And I'm explicitly not looking at one, each one of these individually, I'm looking at how they're all connected together, because I think it's really clear to see that all of these aspects that, or all of these systems that go into supporting a society uh, really are related to one another. And we can take environment as a good example because we hear about the environment and climate change all the time. So we're probably already thinking about ways that, for example, um, the trade, trade and environment are linked, right? Think about the long distance trade that brings all of the non-native uh, non invasive species here to Missouri, right? Or if you've been through the southeast lately, kudzu, for example, right? So there's ways that trade affects environment, and the environment, in turn, affects trade by, you know, in ancient times, uh, trade winds or uh, favorable seasons for different uh, trading operations or the availability of certain resources, right? So there's a give and take. Um, social organization can be bound to the environment, as can agriculture and catastrophes, and we'll talk about that a little later. Um, it's a two-way street, so we can't just say, we're looking for that straw that broke the camel's back, right? Um, I think it's really seductive to say, oh, the Maya collapsed because of drought, and that caused all their systems to collapse, because I think as a society, we're really good at dealing with a single problem. If we're facing a single problem, we can you know, band together and fight against it. But if we're facing a complete systemic undermining of our way of life, good luck, right? Um, and so I think people really get distracted by that straw that breaks the camel's back rather than the entire hay bale that's already sitting on top of the camel. Uh, we have to look at that whole straw bale. Um, and while these ideas aren't necessarily new or inventive, um, I think, and I don't want to speak out of turn and say uh, that this is unique to my book because it's not, I think there are sociologists who are dealing with the idea of collective hubris, but as far as I know, not many people are using this to go back um, and look at uh, historical or prehistorical societies um, with the idea of collective hubris, which is actually what I wanted to call the book, Hubris, Why Ancient Civilizations Failed. However, my editor said, uh, you're in your 30s, you can't write a book called Hubris. That would be hubris in and of itself. And I said, yeah, that's right, but it would probably sell because you'd see the book Hubris. Ooh, what's that, right? Oh, well. So if hubris is excessive pride or arrogance, collective hubris is excessive pride or arrogance endemic to an entire community. 
And so those of you that have taken anthropology classes or read a lot of archaeology, you might have heard the term ethnocentrism. And this is the idea that your society is superior to all others. Um, we certainly aren't guilty of that in any way, shape, or form today. Um, but when it when it's on the individual level, it's one thing, but when it pervades a society, it can lead to a lot of nasty stuff. There are reasons that people don't like to change what they're used to because it's just not necessarily comfortable. So we can't sit here tonight and be all smug saying, oh, the Mesopotamians just should have innovated a new type of uh, agriculture, which is basically what I'm going to say, um, without knowing that we're guilty or susceptible to the same, to the same problems of, you know, uh, thinking our culture is the way to go. Uh, don't feel guilty about it. That's how we grew up. You're, that's how you learn. That's part of enculturation. That's part of how you can exist in this society and get along with the society is by knowing how it functions. That's, that's fine. So uh, like I said before, some hubris only hurts yourself. Your toilet choice is your own choice. That's fine. You can sit on your old, poor old Western toilet. That's just fine. That's up to you. But there are more insidious forms of hubris, and they can hurt others. Uh, I would argue that a lot of say, for example, terrorists of any stripe uh, who are willing to hurt another person or destroy property probably have some sort of sense of, of hubris. But when you do it on the society-wide level, when an entire society says, we are the end-all and be-all, then it can lead to systemic failure. Um, and I think the, the shortest uh, arc that this usually takes, or the, uh, a kind of a, a blank example is, say you have a, a society that's living in, the ancient, in ancient history, right? And they are a small, nascent group of you know, feisty go-getters. And they're expanding. They're taking over their neighbor's areas by either warfare or economic means. And over time, they're introduced to all these different types of agriculture, all these different types of uh, ways of living. And they're saying, oh, this is a great idea. Let's take this. And they borrow and meld and make this really great way of living uh, that they then export. And you know, it becomes a very mm, crystallized way to live. And over hundreds of years, they become more successful in a very regimented way. And after quite a while, they start to think, well, this is easily the best way to live. Look at all those barbarians living around us who don't live like us. And look how much better we live. But then the world starts to change around them. The environment changes. Agricultural conditions change. Social uh, conditions around them change. Uh, the, economic or trade relationships or natural disasters strike. And they say, no, 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 we're not going to change. We're not going to adapt because we've lived this way 150 years, 500 years, whatever. And we look how successful we are. We're not, we don't need to change. The world needs to change. Well, that, that's a recipe for disaster. And that's what we're basically going to be looking at happening over and over tonight uh, in ancient societies. And if I have time, our own, um, we'll see if we get to there. So, when we talk about collapse, and this is a lot of what McEnany talks about and Yofi, um, we need to be really careful. Because the term collapse is not a, a really uh, great descriptor, because it's too general and broad. Uh, it, it's usually talking about elites. Archaeologists grew out of a colonial period of European expansionism, right? And they were really interested in the big mounds and the big uh, temples and the tombs and all the, you know, the museum tchotchkes. <laughs> Uh, and it wasn't until the 60s and 70s when people really started looking into what's called household archaeology, where we're looking at, you know, how did John Q. Uh, Mississippian across the, the street in Cahokia live, right? We weren't really interested in that until later. Um, and so when we're talking about collapse, we're still kind of stuck with that. We're really talking about the elites, because 
for that 90% of the population that was peasants growing food, you know, if you're a peasant serf in the Roman, in the Roman Empire, your life probably isn't substantially different in the Middle Ages, although I have a friend here who's a classic scholar, she might correct me later after. after. Hmm. Um, but but it's, it's a lot of menial farm work, whether you're in the Roman Empire or the Middle Ages, right? So it's, when we talk about collapse, we're talking about very specific segments of society. Um, also, collapse is pretty subjective. Collapse is generally negative. And you know, for some people, uh, a collapse wouldn't be a bad thing. If you're a, a very oppressed person in any situation or any system, and that system collapses, chances are you're going to be doing better. I mean, you might not be doing great, but you might not be in the lowest you know, oppressed class of a society. So a collapse might be a good thing if you're not doing so well. So it's a little, you have to be really careful. So transition is a really nice, neutral, very vanilla kind of boring term. Um, but it's not very compelling. Uh, and it doesn't really scare you, which maybe we need to be scared. I don't know. So when I say collapse, I'm going to try and um, qualify it by saying a uh, elite collapse or a uh, total syst uh, social system collapse or an economic collapse, right? Because that at least pinpoints what part of society is undergoing a substantive change. And again, I just want to mention, because in, in academia, uh, until the 1950s or 60s, collapse was generally seen as very monocausal. There was one thing that caused the collapse, and I still see that a lot in uh, very popular, I'm sure, I'm sure people on Facebook or social media, or you're getting emails from friends or family saying, oh, look, the Maya collapsed because of tuberculosis or whatever, like one single thing that's still all the time in popular media. Nobody collapses for one reason. I mean, Sci-fi notwithstanding, we have a worldwide pandemic and we all die because of that, okay. But in history, up until now, it's been uh, pretty much multi-causal. Even where we had 90% die-off in the New World when the, um, when the European diseases came, there were other things going on, like you know, colonial powers moving in and things like that. So there was not just disease happening there. And so we're going to talk briefly. I'm going to run through these five and the case studies I used. I have to cut the middle part of the lecture out here, but you can find the entire lecture, again, as part of the Low Tech Lecture Series podcast. So I'm going to have to skip over kind of what I start out the last chapter talking about, because I want to really talk about those five aspects in the context of our own society. So um, you know we're all industrial agriculturalists, or we all benefit from industrial agriculture. But it has, you know, it certainly has strengths. It feeds more people than ever in uh, human history. That's great. But it's very dependent on, you know, a couple of crops. If we had a fungus that wiped out corn one year, things would change very drastically. Um, and it's also very dependent on fossil fuels for fertilization, for production, for refrigeration after the fact, for all of these things. It's completely dependent on fossil fuels, which I don't know if you've heard this, but fossil fuels are a finite resource. Uh, not that we're <laughs> really planning for that. Um, so there might, be, there might be some hubris in our own agricultural system where we are, just like the Mesopotamians, we might be doubling down on this system that is working for today, but may need some tweaking <laughs> before the future. I realized I missed environment, so I'm going to backtrack one second. Sorry about that. Um, so obviously, uh, we all know and have heard about environmental problems, uh, not just uh, global warming. We have plenty of environmental problems uh, with you know, floods and earthquakes and hurricanes without global warming. Thank you very much. Um, but as 
we are pretty clear, and in the book I go into great detail to show why archaeologists can understand and uh, deal with uh, ancient environments quite a lot because we use a lot of climate science and we look at the, the, uh, the ice cores and other things that show us exactly how the environment is changing. Um, things are changing much more quickly uh, than in the past and it might be a, a little bit of hubris on our part to think that uh, we'll be able to innovate our way around environmental change. A lot of societies have faced environmental change and they tried to address it too late. Um, you know, some places uh, may do a little better, right? Uh, Canada might get a few more growing days each year, but a lot of other places are going to become too dry uh, to farm at all as the um, eco-zones move forward. Trade, today, uh, the average, I'm sure many of you just ate dinner before coming here, the average meal travels about 1,500, probably heard this, 1,500 miles before making it to your plate, you know, which, okay. Uh, that's working for now, and that's great. But in a future uh, where we might not have as easy uh, transportation networks, uh, we might want to rethink that. Uh, depending on it today is fine, but we might want to be looking to the future a little more uh, carefully. There are things that have been moved across um, the vast expanses of the globe in the ancient world, and I think we could look at them and get some ideas. For example, if you have things that are easy to transport and of high value, these are going to be things that were very early uh, trade goods, right? You don't want to be transporting something that's difficult to transport and not very valuable. You don't see the movement of staples across the ancient world very much, although I can think of maybe Rome importing a lot of grain from Egypt, although that was fraught with peril. So moving things like fresh produce, milk, and meat is, uh, a, in, in the long durée of history, is an aberration and probably one thing uh, or this type of thing might be something we would look at and revamp our in industrial syst uh, system to transport things that should be transported and grow other things locally, which I know just sounds like a you know, hippy-dippy thing. Oh, buy local and all that. But there's, there's some good reasoning behind it. Along with social systems, we want to look at growing populations, right? Uh, and I am not a Malthusian. Um, for those of you who haven't read Malthus, oh, he's a fun one, and you should go look him up on, you know, on the internet and read his things. Malthus basically thought that overpopulation was a good way to thin out the herd because it would cause a lot of, uh, a lot of fighting over resources in the future. So hooray, and populations would always be kept in check by disease and war, so he was a real real sunny type of person. Um, but as we have growing populations, we certainly have food for them today, which is great. Um, but it's something we'll want to keep an eye on as our environment, agriculture, and trade systems may need to change. One question we might want to look at, and I do in the book, is whether urban or rural um, living situations are more long-term sustainable. And spoiler alert, uh, we've been rural for all but the last 50 years, right? So there might be something to that dispersal. When the ancient Maya, for example, suffered their great uh, collapse, 90% of the population, the peasants, they went out to small villages and dispersed because they were a lighter imprint on the landscape that way. So again, if, and again, if we want to be extreme disaster preparedness, right, this would be, um, I know I'm not being very sunny and I might, you might imagine that I have like a bomb shelter full of canned food in my basement. Well. It's not a bomb shelter. It's just a lot of canned food. Um, um, so as far as disasters go, this one's easy. We should really work. There are problems that we know are coming, and there are problems that we don't know are coming. And even the problems that we know are coming, we don't do anything about. 
like Ebola. We've known about Ebola since what, the 70s or maybe even the 60s? And when did we come up with a vaccine? Like the day before it became a global pandemic, right? I mean, in, in, the, in the historic, it was a blink of an eye before it killed us all. Nah, I'm exaggerating a bit, of course. However, why didn't we work on that in the 60s and 70s and maybe by the 80s even, have a vaccine for it and not have to worry about it? Because we were able to stymie this one and that was great, but you know, we live in a pretty, I mean, I know there is a lot of suffering around the world, but we're fairly comfortable and we can solve a lot of the problems that we're already dealing with right now if we put our minds to it, but we don't, which is a problem when something we don't see blindsides us because then we have not only that problem to deal with, but all the ones we already know are coming. So working to, on the problems that we know are coming and uh, you know, might put us in a better position to survive the ones that we don't. So uh, in closing, uh, I invite you all to rethink collapse, right? Uh, tomorrow or your grandchildren's tomorrow might look very different than today. I don't know. I'm not going to say that we're going to collapse tomorrow. I don't, I don't know. Nobody knows. But if it does, don't despair. There are people who do better and worse throughout history during what's known as otherwise a collapse, right? If we have a global meltdown of the economic environment, well, or you know, all our communications networks go out in a global EMP, well, maybe you get to spend more time with your family, right? Oh. Which might not be a benefit to some of you, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding, um, right? So you rethink collapse, right? It may or may not be a good thing. There might be some things that turn out better. There might be some things that turn out worse. It's all uh, a little subjective, so, th so think about that. Um, and also, sacrifice. Like I've, I know I've lived a very, in a very lucky part of history. I've never been asked to sacrifice anything. I don't have friends who went to Vietnam. I didn't have to gather scrap metal in World War II or plant a victory garden. Uh, uh, lately, we haven't really had to sacrifice a whole lot. And I think, and now I'm getting out beyond archaeology, really, but you know, if we're looking at the world that's coming up, we can choose to either glide into a new normal or we can choose to carry on as we are and then maybe crash into a new normal. And those two landings make for very different uh, futures. One's kind of dystopian, I imagine. I don't know. Again, I'm not a futurist. That's not my job or my degree, so I'm a little bit out on a limb here. Um, but I think, I think it's, it's, it's not a bad thing to think about sacrifice and to think about some sort of large-scale mobilization because you know, we do face problems. And thinking that things are going to continue or we're going to invent our way out of this is a little bit uh, hubris, really. Um, and we've seen societies over and over succumb to the same things. Uh, and thinking that we're different may be very dangerous. Let's say my book becomes a national bestseller, and all the policymakers say, OK, let's do this. Let's revamp our infrastructure and completely change it over. And then we don't collapse. Yay! <laughs> I'm happy. I'd love if that happened. But if it doesn't, uh, grow. Learn to garden. Um, OK, so what am I doing about it? That's exactly what I'm doing about it. So this question, how do you feel about the fact that your profession doesn't contribute substantially to society? Well, that date was 11 years ago. Uh, that's my wife, uh, who gives me a hard time all the time, because she's a really good person, um, helping people in their everyday lives on, like, real, on a real level. And so um, I've basically not an academic any, well, I still teach occasionally, uh, but I've basically formed a new institute, a research institute that uh, 
looks at experimental archaeology and pre-industrial technology and how to adapt it, not necessarily to make us all Luddites or to go back in time to live in some, you know, uh, middle or middle age sort of serfdom life. No, I mean, take these ideas, adapt them, and make them our own and new. And that's basically what I'm trying to do here. Um, and so I don't have time to get too much into the institute, but you can check it out. Um, it's on the internet. I think you've heard of the internet. Uh, Lowtechinstitute.org. Uh, you can also email us or uh, come chat with me afterwards. But uh, this is this is what I'm doing, and I'm trying to use some of this archaeological data to actually test it out nowadays, and uh, running workshops and things like that, and trying to revive a lot of these uh, more handicraft, more human-scale DIY sorts of solutions to taking care of ourselves. And a lot of that came out of the depression of writing this book, because writing about the collapse of society can be very depressing, even on our own. Just writing about all these different ways in which society can fall apart, maybe it affected me. I don't know. But anyway, uh, thank you very much. If you listened to the whole talk and still want more, you can subscribe to our low-tech lecture series on archaeology in the prehistoric world, another series you'll find on that low-tech lecture series podcast. Now let's take a look at this week in low-tech news. Treehugger has a great piece on the superiority of wooden cutting boards. In short, wood has antimicrobial properties that plastic boards do not. Even after bleaching, plastic cutting boards still have bacteria detectable in the tiny grooves and cut marks. Vice's motherboard reports on the overconsumption of protein in our diet, which contributes not only to health problems, but environmental strain, as huge numbers of beef cattle, chickens, and other animals are raised in industrial conditions. The Conversation blog had a piece outlining the importance of soil health as the key to future agriculture stability. This is a great point and really underlies the mantra of getting fossil fuels out of the food chain. The article discusses three myths. One, that industrial agriculture feeds the whole world. Two, large farms are more efficient, and three, the necessity of conventional farming to feed the world. And I think my favorite article of the week comes from Grist. It is a report based on the article, Historical Series of Phenological Data for Cherry Tree Flowering at Kyoto City, by Anno and others. In short, we don't have instrumental temperature measurements for more than a century and a half, but people in Japan have been noting the timing of cherry blossom blooming for 1,200 years. By plotting this data, it's possible to show that the trees are blooming significantly earlier now, and that change is really regular, by which I mean it's a steady drop in date for first blooming. So check that out. It's really neat. Those are some of the stories we're following in Low Tech News. To see links to the stories we've discussed, send us a news tip, and more, visit the Low Tech website, lowtechinstitute.org, or by following the link in our podcast profile. Now for a brief recap of the research we have going on around the Institute. We're a week away from closing on a house near Madison, Wisconsin. While nothing is final until we've gone through closing, all indications are that we, this will go smoothly and next weekend we'll be moving into our new permanent location. I'll have to take a week off of podcasting and blogging, but I'll be back in two weeks with an audio tour of the Low Technology Institute's permanent location. So stay tuned for that. We're really excited to be in our new space. It's going to be great. That's all we have this week on the Low Tech Podcast, which is put out by the Low Technology Institute. At the moment, the show is hosted, edited, and distributed by me, Scott Johnson. This episode was recorded at the Low Technology Recording Room. 
Our intro music was Redneck, off the album Live at Canal 103 by Mara Cow. That song is under the Creative Commons Non-Commercial Attribution License, and this podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Share Alike License, meaning you're free to share and use it as long as you give us credit. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn Radio. If you like our podcast, please share it with a friend or three. Help us get the word out. You can find out more information about the Low Technology Institute at lowtechinstitute, that's all one word, dot org. You can also follow us on Twitter at low underscore techno. You can reach me directly at lowtechinstitute at gmail.com. I'd be happy to have your feedback, comments, or ideas. Thanks and take care. Detectable in the tiny grooves and cut marks. And there's an airplane. That's a military jet. I can't wait till we move and don't live by an airport. It'll make making podcasts so much easier.